In this episode, Steve the Dibber sets the bar pretty low, M talks courtship dances and romances, and our guest Dr. Carly Ork has fun with grunion runs. Welcome to Fax Machine. Listeners, my name is Rob, and I'm here virtually alongside my co-hosts Noah. Hello. And M. Hi. The regular cast of Fax Machine, a podcast by and for people who are curious about everything, but especially the things that make them laugh. And today, I'm very pleased to welcome our special guest, Dr. Carly York. Welcome. Yay. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, Carly, you're an assistant professor of biology at Lenoir Ryan University, uh, where you study animal physiology, behavior, and biomechanics. And yes. you're also a science communicator and featured in um, such places as Science Channel's What's on Earth, uh, The Dinosaur Show with a past guest, Dustin Groick, and Science Cafe at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. Is that all, that all true? It, this is all factual information. Um, yeah. Um, so my my primary job is being a professor at this little liberal arts school in North Carolina, where I get to teach classes like animal physiology, vertebrate zoology. Um, I also teach non-majors biology, which I think is super duper fun. Um, I have a little research program here where we're studying the sensory physiology of African clawed frogs. Um, And I'm also working with the North Carolina Zoo on some research projects as well. Uh, We've been working with their chimpanzee troupe, and I'm about to get started on a project with their African elephants as well. So (laughs) all over the place with that. And then on the side, I'd like to do some science communication for funsies, too. Um, (laughs) um, I am relatively new to this world. It's been only about a year that I've kind of just just dove in headfirst. And um, it's been a really meaningful, fun journey to talk more to the general public about science and what I do as a scientist. I think it's interesting that you have such a passion for different animals and... It's also interesting that you have a passion for the passion of different animals. If that's a, yeah. <laughs> Do you want to tell us a little bit about that, that interest or hobby? Sure. Um, well, I, I have studied a, a really wide range of animals. Um, many biologists end up focusing on, on one or two species throughout their career. And I've, I'm a, I'm a mess. I don't know. I started by studying (laughs) horses and social behavior and stress physiology. And um, while I was working on this, I got distracted by a marine biology course and decided I wanted to study squid. So I went on for my doctorate and I studied the sensory physiology and biomechanics of squid. Um, And then, of course, now I'm studying the frogs and elephants and chimpanzees. But on top of that, I have developed... Um, quite the interest in animal romances, and <laughs> I have I have a little a little project in my pocket that was inspired by a 
an assignment that I give my non-majors in my non-majors biology course where they have to write a book um, for children on sexual selection and they need to pick three animals Mm. and describe the mating habits of these animals specifically (laughs) to children Um, so (laughs) I've been for the past two years a few few years given these assignments and I get them in and every time I'm like these are so fun and (laughs) I just started thinking you know the next sort of fun fun thing to do would be to work on a book and if I was gonna choose something that was endlessly exciting it would it would have to be the sexual escapades of of animals so I've (laughs) been starting to do a lot of research working on this project when the book is published we'll have to do like a a reading of it on an episode (laughs) yes I'm yeah, gonna... if you need someone to do the audiobook, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. I'll need to work on my my voice before then. In in the audiobook, do you intend to have animal sounds appropriate oh. to the content? Because <laughs> Jeez. I hadn't considered that, but now that you mention it, the audio yeah, audio cues are very important for animal sexy time. That I think the Animal Sexy Time podcast would be a great oh, entree. <laughs> I love that. But that's, I guess, that's sort of a preview of what we're going to do because in today's episode, we're going to celebrate this project of yours and we're going to tease apart the inner workings and best examples of what you might call love or the making of love in the animal kingdom. Um, So in this episode, we're going to discuss relationships in the natural world. Is monogamy for the birds? What species can get romantic in the Atlantic? Um, How much whale can a humpback hump? Uh, (laughs) Light some candles, pour yourself a glass of wine, and there's a chance that we'll answer at least one of those questions in today's episode. Uh, But that's the idea. So we're going to talk about animal romance. Let me bat my eyelashes and see if I can coax our first fact out of Noah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Com- oh, thank you so much. For- <laughs> I am fully, I am fully coaxed. Commitment to the bit. Oh. It's real, real flashing. I, I need a beer. Give me a second. <laughs> I'll be right back. Totally, totally got him there. Didn't see that coming. Nope. <laughs> this week I learned that the Perth Zoo in Western Australia has a small marsupial named Steve, whose job it is to make all the other males of his species look more attractive by comparison. <laughs> oh, Steve. <laughs> Steve is a is a very charismatic charismatically uncharismatic animal. We'll get to that later. So Steve belongs to the species Parentechinus apicalis, which is commonly known as the Dibblers, D-I-B-B-L-E-R-S. These are small crepuscular mouse-like marsupials that have these like long tapered snouts that end in these itty bitty little noses. They are (laughs) super, super cute. Uh, When I say small, they weigh between like 40 and 125 grams. Um, They are, they can be 10 to 16 centimeters long with usually a 7.5 to 12 centimeter long tail. So they're almost all tail and they, you know, they're very, very small. They once occupied much of Western Australia, but were thought to have gone extinct in like the late 1800s, um, primarily due to predation by feral cats and foxes that came along with the colonization of Australia. But about 80 years later, in 1967, they were rediscovered on a beach in southwestern Australia, but they do remain endangered. 
So to combat this, the Perth Zoo began a captive breeding program and has been reintroducing them back into the wild successfully. But like with many species, breeding in captivity presents some unique challenges from trying to recapitulate their natural environment to reducing stressors that might encourage, you know, cannibalism of litters that can happen. It's a it's a thing for a lot of animals when they feel stressed or like there may not be enough resources to support their offspring. Um, and protecting the animals from the health issues that can sometimes crop up. For example, I read in a publication about dibblers from the Perth Zoo that they had had this issue at one point with like mites that were making their way into the dibblers' cages, basically on the leaves that the zookeepers had been bringing in from outside to use as bedding for those cages. Um, and they basically mentioned in this paper that they solved this problem by freezing all the leaves they bring in for like four days before they introduced them to the cages, which I just thought was like kind of a cool anecdote about how to improve improvise and like overcome challenges that they arise in this kind of zoo environment because like these are animals about which you really don't know anything especially you know these like super rare animals that are really endangered or like basically aren't there aren't a lot of other places that are studying them that like intimately it's like have them in that zoo environment so they're really learning everything about this animal and what's like they're comfortable with and you know what they need for their you know well-being and to reproduce and try to regain some of these population numbers and distribution from scratch right uh so I, it got me just really interested and in about like sort of the challenges that that you know, zookeepers face uh, in in these situations where they're trying to save a species from extinction, and like you know, very up close and personal with um, some of the last organisms of the you know last individuals of these species that could not be on the earth anymore. So it's it's a very uh, it was very cool to like sort of get into like zookeeping journals and sort of read the way the, uh, they sort of like recount the the issues they had and like how they overcame them. It was very, very cool. But in addition to like learning how to keep these animals comfortable and happy, they've also learned some quirks of the dibbler mating process. For example, female dibblers have this interesting behavior where the first male they ever see, they will not mate with. And what they'll do is use that male as the sort of comparison point for every subsequent male that they meet, whether or not those subsequent males are basically like better than that first one. So they're trying to play some sort of game so they don't get bamboozled by the first male that they see. Um, and unfortunately, humans have solved that little puzzle uh, in their efforts to make, you know, like a breeding program more efficient uh, to re reintroduce them to the wild by um, choosing the ugliest, just f most balding, like <laughs> probably like missing a couple toes, really beat up an old <laughs> dibbler named Steve. And they make sure that when uh, <laughs> when it's time to like set up, you know, possible potential mating um, a sort of arrangements, that Steve is always the first dibbler, the first male dibbler that the female dibblers see. <laughs> Um, and this basically means that all the other males who might not be such fine specimens themselves, but they are better looking than Steve, um, have a much better shot at a successful mating. Um, and I found this very fascinating. <laughs> it's just a very adorable thing. I feel so bad for Steve because he has no chance. Like just, there's just, this is the rules of dibblers. He's never going to be able to mate. Um, but he also provides, you know, not only a great service to his like buds in the sort of dibbler, you know, society, 
<laughs> but also um, he doesn't realize it, but a great uh, service to uh, efforts to save his entire species. So I just felt like Steve the Dibbler needed to be appreciated. But uh, basically, <laughs> in order to uh, express my appreciation for Steve, I uh, wrote a song uh, about Steve the Dibbler. Um, I am not a musician. So <laughs> this is a uh, this is me trying to honor Steve uh, in the in the uh, I won't say in the best way that I know how, but just in the way uh, that the spirit moved me in that moment. So I'd, I'd like to play the Steve the Dibbler song for you um, in my terrible guitar that I've just tried to start learning. I hope that's okay with you. Please, right. here. please do. <laughs> so. <laughs> This is so exciting. I would have brought my harmonica to tune. Okay. I am also using like a beer tab. <laughs> okay. Nice. Uh, so this is uh, the Steve the Dibbler song, uh, in my opinion, like a la Johnny Cash. I knew an old son of a gun down at the old Perth Zoo who never had a lick of fun and did it all for you. Though Steve was no fine specimen, he did a lot for conservation by lowering the bar for men across that outback nation. See, old Stevie looks real bad. (laughs) Stevie looks real bad. Mangiest you ever saw. No heart he surely had. Not a tooth was in his maw. Old Steve. He was a dibbler. Oh Old Steve, he was a pal. <laughs> Old Steve, he had a power. When the sorry, I just can't play guitar. This is the problem. Um, when females first saw him, and then the other men, it double-crossed their dibble sense and turned those twos to tens. Old Steve, he was a dibbler. Old Steve, he was a pal. <laughs> Old Steve, he had a power. When the females, <laughs> I'm just gonna repeat this. When the females first saw him, and then the other men, it d- double crossed their dibble sense and turned those twos to tens. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that is Steve the Dibbler. <laughs> You've Thank never you, been more Texas. <laughs> um so i i just was i felt very inspired i feel like steve needed to be uh appreciated a little bit more um and i also asked you know so they only live you know a few years so i did so this is like a part of their breeding program i'm assured by there's a a zookeeper named taryn uh who i know through um the skype a scientist after hours science trivia that i don't know uh, how many in a row we've probably now mentioned this uh great event on um, <laughs> but uh it's a great event where we meet really cool scientists and just science enthusiasts who, from all over the world who have, have come to do this fun trivia and and one of those people is a zookeeper from the perth zoo who shared this fact with me uh and has inspired a lot of uh fan art uh amongst the the science trivia community so i just <laughs> wanted to uh it add to that with the with the song wow that we salute you steve <laughs> that was wonderfully done thank you <laughs> that was awesome i wish there was such a nice hack for pandas right like there's got to be <laughs> maybe pandas are too yeah. cute i was about to say i'm like their charisma might, might be working against them <laughs> <in that regard. laughs> i just learned this past week that 
giant pandas can poop up to 40 times a day. I mean, wow. If, if that's not a turn on. No. <laughs> I'm just saying, well, if you could do that, you wouldn't want to waste time mating. Yeah. <laughs> that's a lot of pooping to do. <laughs> what yeah. time is left? I, I'm actually really impressed with the restraint of these little lady dibblers to pass on the first man that comes around. Like, I wonder if that's... <laughs> like, do their moms just say, don't do it, honey. Wait. <laughs> don't settle. <laughs> yeah, that's... The next will be better. Because <laughs> the, the moms know about Steve, too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's don't. be honest. We've we've all known a Steve. We've all so. known a Steve in our day. <laughs> no, can I ask if, if, you're, if Taryn, your zookeeper friend, does she specialize, or is that just one of the many species that she works with? I think it's one of many. So um, she's a bit of a dibbler-dabbler? Ah, <laughs> oh, man. Wherever you are, Darren, I hope you're listening. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> this week, I learned the story of the time Sir David Attenborough captured a Wilson's Bird of Paradise on film for the first time ever by tossing some leaves on its courtship routine. Or, if this story had a subtitle, how the female bird gaze produced some of the most astounding creatures on Earth. Oh. Right? What has the male gaze achieved? (laughs) Not that. Not that. (laughs) Um, So my fact is about birds of paradise. And I'm, again, really exploiting the unique advantages of podcasting by sharing a story that is really highly visual (laughs) to be really appreciated. So I would say that if you have Google in any way available to you in this moment, please hop on it, uh, type Birds of Paradise. I'll mention a few particular ones over the course of this fact. Search those guys too. Um, They honestly need to be seen to be believed. So Birds of Paradise uh, are a family of bird species that are endemic to the rainforests of Papua New Guinea, um, some nearby islands, and parts of northeastern Australia. And although we've been aware of them for a while, um, and by a while I mean from recordings from um, early explorers uh, of these islands, um, sort of identifying them as mythical creatures, um, even Magellan, uh, you know, the the world explorer brought some specimens of them back to Europe in the 16th century. We've also over time collected kind of like not so well preserved specimens that enabled some of their taxonomy, though that's since been revised. Um, So even though we've had little kind of hints of their existence, um, they for a long time have been like a tantalizing mystery to biologists and wildlife scientists. And this is in part because they're kind of hard to get to and study in person, you know, being kind of deep in these dense rainforests and these pretty remote islands but also in part because they are just spectacular to behold. So if one, and I guess that one is me, uh, were to (laughs) distill birds of paradise into their two, like, perhaps most enthralling characteristics, um, those would have to be their physical appearance and their courtship rituals. So birds of paradise, like lots of birds, exhibit sexual dimorphism, uh, meaning that males and females of the species look very different from each other. Um, And in the case of these guys, the males are some of the most vibrant, elaborate, and honestly just, like, visually arresting birds that you'll ever see um like i'm talking like nudie scale of just like <laughs> overwhelmingly eye-poppingly 
like stunning. Um, and all 36 species of these birds look drastically different from one another. Um, if anything, like the only common thread among them is that they all look like these brilliant, like futuristic alien birds that are also somehow in a cabaret at the <laughs> same time. Um, like just completely undeniably maximalists to the full of fullest extent of the word. Yeah, um, if, if you live anywhere near like the Bronx or the two or five trains, like the Bronx Zoo aviary has a few birds of paradise and they are ooh. awesome. Like they are really for, for the New York listening crowd. Like they are great to check out. And uh, like they, they, they have such great enclosures cause they're really big, but they, the way that's framed just no matter what vantage point you're standing at, you can, you know how, okay. You know how like when you go to the zoo and the birds are like mm. in the place where you can't see them because the birds don't want you to have a good time at the zoo. Right. Um, Everyone yeah. knows that. And it's like, it's a known birds. thing about birds. Yeah. The government invented them to spy on us and they hide at the zoo. Yeah. It's really annoying. Zoo- zoos are for but... the birds. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like, however they made these parts of the Bronx Zoo, you can always see them. And it's just like, it's really cool because they like blend in really nicely and then also pop out like incredibly depending on how they're like flourishing their feathers. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Okay. Well, I need to go and see that. At least one species hangs upside down like a bat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, really? Absolutely. Absolutely love it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. As part of their like their courtship ritual, they just kind of like swing themselves under the branch oh, and like cool. sway their tail feathers out like, ha! <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> just like that. <laughs> Um, but yeah, to describe like a few of the sort of like physical features. So some of them have these like super long, like as far out as a meter, like thin, really delicate feathers um, that just look like elaborate like headdresses or like fascinators. Um, they're really colorful. Like these birds can be bright red and orange and blue and yellow and green and all of the colors. I'll stop listing them. Just assume they're all there. Um, they also display really unique iridescence. Um, so I think, Noah, you actually talked about sort of the mechanics like microscopically of iridescence a while back. But these birds, basically their feathers can have these sort of like complex microstructures that scatter and reflect light in all sorts of crazy ways. And one in particular, the Lazus Protea, uh, like they have a breastplate that can look blue and green and yellow and orange, just like alternately, um, because they have multiple types of these microstructures, and we've never on one feather, and we've never seen this anywhere else in nature. They just are brilliant, um, and also like just kind of like an added thing. Uh, a lot of them have really like neon bright mouths when they open their <laughs> mouths so like when they squawk and oftentimes their heads are kind of like black or dark colored uh-huh. you'll just see like this flash of like yellow or green and it's very <laughs> distressing but it's cool i'm glad parents don't have that that would be <laughs> yeah. are you saying that <laughs> what are you doing <laughs> are you saying that as a child or as a teacher <laughs> Honest, Sorry, honestly, as, both, as someone's maybe. child is what i meant to say rob's not a child <laughs> <laughs> As a person who has I'm parents. Well. Though Rob is ageless, as we've discussed. As a so person maybe. Who, Rob, what I meant to say is, are you saying that as a person who has parents or as a person who has given a parent's child bad grades? Yes. Well, let me, let me tell you, as a, as a full adult man, that at no age do certain parents stop scolding you relentlessly. But um, yeah, definitely working with parents, I think mm-hmm. I think it might be worse. It might be worse when it's someone else's kid who you're, who's yelling, their parents yelling at you. <laughs> Yeah. There. <laughs> um, so I mentioned also their courtship displays as being something that is just remarkable about them. So to throw more adjectives at you, because again, audio medium, very visual effect. <laughs> um, these guys, like the way that they sort of show themselves off um, to attract a mate 
it's acrobatic, it's rhythmic, it's shape-shifting, it's mesmerizing. Like, as Rob mentioned, some of these birds will flip themselves upside, upside down. They'll, like, contort and stretch out and puff out their bodies and fan out their feathers and, like, hop or tiptoe around or <laughs> flick their tails in, like, this hypnotic cadence. Um, and basically, like, the sort of total effect is that you just have these stunning, like, illusions that make them not look or move in ways that you feel like birds innately should. Mm. And it's kind of freaky to watch them, but it's also just, like, what – it's mind-bending. It's like, what what are they doing? This is no longer a bird. It is it is something <laughs> It is a vibe. Entirely. It is it is a vibe. <laughs> exactly. Um, in my opinion, the most extreme example of this is the superb bird of paradise. Superb a superb bird, bird, if you will. <laughs> yes. So as a full disclosure, what's really underlying this fact is that over the past year in these sad, like dreary pandemic times, I have been harboring a slow burning obsession with birds of paradise. <laughs> <laughs> um, in particular, the superb bird of paradise. And this is because I happened to find out about a semi-recent discovery um, in 2018 of like another uh, type of them called the Vogelkop superb bird of paradise. Um, but their most stunning feature is that the bulk of their feathers absorbs 99.95% of light that hits them. Mm. So they are so darkly black that our eyes can't discern them as like 3D objects. So if you're familiar with Vantablack, um, which is like a form of this pigment that we've synthesized in the lab, these birds are essentially Vantablack. And they're so freaky <laughs> to watch. Yeah, I've seen because... them. They're crazy. They oh and they gosh. like have the they like have a big fan of black and then they're aren't they like kind of blue around their like uh necks? Yes, so it's exactly. Like this metallic blue and just like a sea of darkness. <laughs> yeah. So I, throughout the past year, will just on a random afternoon in the middle of the work be like, I need to look at this bird again. And we'll just pull it up. I've planned like Halloween costume designs around trying to like emulate like a mating ritual. Like, Oh, that's very cool. It'll happen someday. It'll, it's, I, yeah. I mean, my, there, things are, things are in my Amazon wish list is all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, exactly as you described, Noah. So like these guys will sort of fan their wings during their courtship display in a way that like fully conceals the rest of their bodies. And it essentially creates what looks like a black hole that is just punctuated with these like fluorescently turquoise splotches that look like a clownish pair of eyes and a mouth. <laughs> um, and this like visualization that they do is actually scientifically referred to as the psychedelic smiley face. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. um, yeah, so it's just like, I mean, yeah, if you pull up pictures, which I hope assume everyone is doing right now who's listening, and if not, do so. Like, it's again that sensation where you're just like, this is not a bird. I don't know what I'm looking at, but it's just unsettling and <laughs> mesmerizing at the same time. Um, and actually, these images uh, of this bird and of other birds of paradise uh, were captured semi-recently as part of uh, the Birds of Paradise project, which was held through the Cornell Lab of... <clears throat> Okay. You got this. Other story is that I realized today that I've been pronouncing ornithology incorrectly for my entire life until <laughs> just now. How did you pronounce it? Ornithology. Ornithology? Oh. Ornithology. <clears throat> Through the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Nice. There we go. It's a process. <laughs> um, and to learn more about this, uh, zoom on over to birdsofparadiseproject.org. You should. It's a great website, and they lay out all of their findings um, and information about these words in a really cool, like, user-friendly interactive way. 
But anyways, uh, this project consisted of like 18 expeditions to New Guinea over eight years, and it ended in 2019, um, and was a collaboration between Cornell Lab scientist Ed Scholes and Nat Geo photographer Tim Lehman. Um, and basically, they produced the most close-up and like detailed images and video of these birds that we've had to date. And it was a really impressive undertaking. Like they sought out every species of birds of paradise, and there are 39 um, like in their particular like subhabitats um, and like found out exactly where and when they perch for their courtship displays and set up cameras in position that actually like captured the female's point of view of their courtship. So like in the past, we had a few pictures from really far away and it was just like, oh, the birds are, you know, flopping their feathers out. But these guys captured the images from the front where you see like these crazy like apparitions that just are not birds <laughs> and allowed us to really fully take in the spectacle of like whoa these guys are doing pretty phenomenal things um as part of their courtship displays so a big question um sort of with regards to birds of paradise as you might imagine is how the hell did they get this way <laughs> <laughs> like they are again so strange and fantastical and unlike any other birds in the animal kingdom what made them this way. Um, and of course, like I mentioned there, you know, like on these very remote kind of isolated islands in the Pacific. Uh, so speciation, um, basically like over the disappearance and reappearance of land bridges surrounding these islands um, over thousands of years, you know, caused like isolated populations to separate and breed within themselves and develop divergent traits. So in terms of how they look very different, like that partially at least explains that. Um, they also, in their natural habitat, have very few predators, at least for adults. Um, there are some like snakes and smaller rodents that will go after their eggs. Um, so they don't need to like in any way like camouflage really from predators or try to scare them off. Um, and so being really colorful and crazy is not so much of a detriment in terms of that. Um, and they also, uh, at least the males, don't really need to compete for food um, or assert dominance over each other just because their environment doesn't necessitate that. Um, and also some of these crazy traits um, in terms of their appearance are actually kind of a nuisance. Like, you know, picture a tiny bird with three feet of tail sticking off of it. <laughs> can probably get in the way. They might trip over it, but it happens. Um, so the main thing I'm getting at here is that, you know, their crazy appearance and their courtship rituals um, aren't really necessary to their survival. So they weren't probably a product of like natural selection. And the premise of that, of course, is that animals acquire traits that make them more likely to survive. But it does fit Darwin's perhaps lesser known theory of sexual selection, uh, also featured in The Origin of Species, which states that traits that help an individual mate can also evolve to become more prevalent in a population, even if these traits in some cases have some perhaps like slight uh, detriment to their survival. Now, one type of sexual selection is female choice, where females are the ones calling the evolutionary shots um, by selecting mating partners whose particular traits appeal to them. And that's what we have going on. That sounds like a bit of a theme of this episode as well. <laughs> I know. Just, this is kind of animal romance, romance, and now I think it's just kind of like <laughs> ladies calling the shots. And I, I'm okay with that. You know, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so in the case of Birds of Paradise, you know, these selections are based upon then the male's appearance and their ability to do these crazy courtship rituals and dances. Um, and I have to say it gets pretty competitive. 
So courtship uh, sometimes, and I guess often, uh, for these guys happens in what's called a lek, where multiple males like put their extravagance on display um, to appeal to the female gaze of uh, onlooking females. Um, and the ladies are discerning and take a lot of time like really closely examining the different males. The Cornell study actually captured some females spending five to six hours a day just watching <laughs> these males put on their shows and being like, <laughs> Close, but not quite. Sashay away. Uh, <laughs> that one's a Steve. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Man, the rest of these are looking pretty good compared to that one. <laughs> um, and to tie this back to the original fact for my story, male birds of paradise take great care in kind of clearing out debris in their kind of dance spaces in these leks. Um, so basically, David Attenborough managed to capture that little guy in camera by throwing some leaves and it's dance space, and then it popped out and was like, hey. how the hell do these get here? <laughs> like, I'm never going to mate with this shit, and cleared it out, and then, lo, we saw a bird for the first time, so good job, Sir David. Very cool. I mean, I mean, if that bird saw David Attenborough, though, it would never mate with another bird. I mean, it's just like, I've seen the yeah. peak. <laughs> Sir David Attenborough, the anti-Steve. Attenbirdo. <laughs> wow. Uh, that needs to be a t-shirt. <laughs> So as you can imagine, uh, you know, females can in a way kind of gauge the males like quality is the term for it um, from courtship. So in terms of like their health and vigor um, and potential to produce babies that are healthy. But as far as we can tell, part of it is also just aesthetic and that like female birds are like, mm, I kind of like this one's feathers a little more than that one. So I'm going to mate with this guy, <laughs> um, which at least for me is kind of wild to think about in terms of like birds having their own personal standards of beauty <laughs> yeah. that then like dictate their evolution um but so the mates who went out in terms of these elaborate courtship rituals uh get the chance to mate and not all of them do and those guys then pass down their fantastical plumage and dance moves to their offspring um and we've actually also as part of this study captured juvenile males learning and practicing um how to shake what their daddies gave them <laughs> so <laughs> Even that is propagated. Emily, um, the way you said that <laughs> was so proper. <laughs> Again, not captured via podcasting, but I absolutely show me as I was saying yes. that. <laughs> <laughs> but on the other side of that coin, um, the females who mate also pass down their preferences mm. for males um, and for brilliant iridescence or neon mouths or vanta black. Um, and then over generations, this pushes the males to gravitate to like greater extremes of showiness and ridiculousness just to outcompete their already pretty showy and ridiculous peers. Um, and that's what's then resulted in these kind of otherworldly traits and these beautiful birds that capture our imaginations, defy our explanations, and prompt David Attenborough to cockblock a bird in Papua New Guinea. <laughs> <laughs> I'd just like to hear David Attenborough then narrate that scene again. And here, the frustrated oh, no. male <laughs> turns to me and says, What the fuck, bro? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this fact is brought to you by the research that I've been doing on this bigger project looking at Hanky Panky in the animal kingdom. And <laughs> this particular animal... I have filed under a chapter I've called the Kinksters. <laughs> Ooh. This is going to be the best book. <laughs> I cannot wait. 
<laughs> so the California grunion fish is not a particularly memorable looking animal. It's a relatively small fish, around four to five inches long, with a silvery sheen, kind of like a sardine. I just want to say, actually, I've heard that four to five inches for a fish is, is pretty good. Yeah, it's, it's respectable. <laughs> I knew that one wasn't going to slide. It's all about proportion. <laughs> they don't have any bright colors or flamboyant fins, uh, no bioluminescent lanterns or sword-shaped heads here. Um, but behind its rather vanilla appearance lies a very kinky little fish. So grunions are only found off the coast of Southern California in northern Baja, Mexico. And their spawning season goes from March through September. Um, but grunion mating only occurs under very specific conditions. And it has to be during either a new or a full moon. And while the moon certainly adds an ambiance to the occasion, uh, the tides are also highest during this time. And the grunion fish will ride the waves up onto the beach and wriggle themselves up on the sand for an adult-only beach party. <laughs> so this event looks rather awkward, almost what you would expect of a fish out of water, but to them, it's worth the struggle. So on mass, their average silvery color becomes this wash of incandescence as their bodies Ooh. flop around in the sand, ready to mate. <laughs> and once in the sand, the female will raise her body up and shimmy herself down into <laughs> the sand. Um, so she will get herself three quarters of the way down or so into the sand and lay around 2,000 to 3,000 eggs. And while she is still propped upright in the sand, a male grunion will come and wrap his body around hers and fertilize the eggs that she just laid. Hmm. And while it's true that this ostentatious display attracts predators looking for a snack in a vulnerable state, the sheer <laughs> number of shiny, writhing creatures confuses even the best of them, um, allowing this to be a truly successful orgy overall. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, can... depends on your measure of a successful orgy. <laughs> so. So the female is perpendicular to the earth. Yes. Like a like a, a, a moa, an Easter Island head sort of coming out of the beach. Yes. And then the the male wraps itself around. Yeah. And okay. think of thousands, thousands of them doing this all at the same time. And try very hard not to become aroused. <laughs> I dare you. So I'm liable to go out and join them. <laughs> so the tides are at their highest during the time under these beautiful full and new moons um and this is critical for the next generation of grunions after the eggs are laid and fertilized they then have two weeks to incubate in the dry sand above the water line and the outer membrane of the egg which is called the corian keeps them from drying out and getting crushed and the egg looks almost like a baby fish got trapped inside a marble. And by the time the next tide arrives, the water moving over the sand signals the eggs that it's safe to hatch and swim out to sea. 
And if the water doesn't quite reach the eggs, they can actually delay their hatching for another two weeks until the wow. next high tide rolls around. Uh, in order to break out of these tough little eggs, they have to release a special enzyme through their tail that then dissolves the corian and lets them swim free. So they're hatching a plan. <laughs> <laughs> So this whole event is called a Grunion Run, and it's <laughs> <laughs> it's become quite the tourist spectacle, and people like to come out and watch the giant fish orgy, and not just watch, they want to participate in their own way. Oh, wow. Um, and so these fish are vulnerable to overfishing during this time because there's so many of them just right. laid out mm. on the beach and these fish are distracted. Um, so they've had to place protections on the grunions during spawning time. Condom. <laughs> <laughs> so you're typically not allowed to fish them between April and May which at least gives them a good head start on the spawning. And after that, people over 16 that have a valid fishing license are allowed to fish during the spawning event under one very important condition. You have to catch them with your hands. That is the only legal way to catch a grunion during spawning season is to just get on in there with your hands and grab the fish while they're doing the dirty. Wow. <laughs> so. It's so funny, though. I mean, just this idea of people coming to watch what really is a giant fish orgy and being like, I'm going to catch them. And just rolling up their sleeves like, all right, let's go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> that, that was a judge with a real sense uh, of humor where, like, the ecologists were like, you can't catch the grunions! And then the people were like, we want the grunions! And the judge is like, I decide you can only catch them with your hands. Yes. And everyone's we angry. We want the grunions! <laughs> yeah. So I was, I was searching around on YouTube thinking this must be hilarious to watch people <laughs> run around and try to catch a grunion. Um, and it is. It is hilarious. You're right. <laughs> and, and I just, I, I also found this, this quote from veteran Grunion watcher Mimi DiMatteo, who says that when they flop up against your feet, it sort of sounds like whoopa, whoopa, whoopa. <laughs> Poetic. Oh, man. Whoopa whoopa making whoopee whoopee. Mm. It's the sound of love. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. So. The sound of whoopa. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so Against whoopee. my feet they go whoopa. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, oh. Please write a song about this. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, everybody's whoopa in the moonlight. Okay. <laughs> everybody's whoopa on the weekend. <laughs> so all that remains today is our quiz. And in the spirit of romance, today's quiz is about timeless love. The kind of love stories that will endure long past our shuffles across this mortal coil. And that could mean one of two things. Species with adorable, lifelong mating, or cheesy romantic movies. In this case, 
I read it's the room. Both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I read the room and I went mostly animals, but there will okay. be one Man. movie. <laughs> okay. <sighs> All right. So here we go in our animal romance quiz. Question one. In, in what species do groups of animals move together, but a typical group will only have one uh, mating pair and have offspring? And when they mate, it's made obvious by what's been described as jubilant nuzzling. <laughs> is it elephants? I So the thing about the way I've worded this question is I'm really open to, to <laughs> other answers here, because I'm sure that it's true for more than just the, the species I have. I don't think it's elephants. Okay. So there's like a group that like lives. You specifically said moves together. Yes, a group, a group of animals that live and move together. Um, so like in sort of like a herd or like a hive or something like that. Yeah. That kind of thing. And ba- a sexually mature male will basically, at some point in their life, leave home to either join or start a new right. group. Um, so this could is this lions? Again, like I'm regretting the way <laughs> I phrased it because. I don't, I I think, yes, actually, but like... It, it does sound a lot like the plot of The Lion King. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but so I'll say, here are some of the facts I have that may help specify. Um, okay. So the mating season is from typically January to April. And that, oh. that, <laughs> and that while reports vary, as many as 20% of these groups may actually have a second mating pair. Um, even though it's not considered um, typical of this species. Can we get a taxa? Yeah, so these are, uh, let's say... Can I, I'll make a quick, uh, I'll make just one more guess before we get that. Yeah. Is this a primate? It is not a, I mean, again... Because <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, I don't know, maybe like chimpanzees have that kind of thing. Yeah, could point. could well be. I super regret the phrasing here, but... Um, <laughs> so we're we're looking in, uh, I'll, I'll narrow it down. We are looking in canids. Mm. Okay. Listen. African dog? Is it Yeah, wolves? it could it could be. <laughs> <laughs> but... This is the worst one you've ever done. <laughs> I know. So this is one of those situations where I hadn't quite finished the quiz and so uh-huh. I, I wrote this like right as we were setting up and I realized it was super vague, but <laughs> Uh, you also sort of reacted to that the same way you did to all the other things that could be but aren't what you were thinking of. So yeah, but at the exact same moment, Emily said wolves. Oh, yeah. Oh, and that that was the one I was thinking of. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the one I... right answer among multiple right or wrong answers. Yeah. I love the way you reacted. Like, yeah, could be, could be that. That could be it. I... <laughs> It was the sort of thing where as soon as I read the question, I was like, oh, damn, <laughs> this one's, for whatever reason, I thought jubilant nuzzling was like, oh, only dogs <laughs> could do that. I forgot. Oh, it has been so long since the question. I forgot about jubilant nuzzling. <laughs> but yeah, that was like the thing where I was like, how am I going to so differentiate is, this? Is that how, is is it jubilant or is, is this a different it's word? It's definitely jubilant. jubilant. It's jubilant. Okay. You're saying like jubilant. <laughs> Well, I was yeah. like, this must be some sort of biology term I'm not aware of. <laughs> no, it's jubilant, and I don't know why. I think I corrected myself to make it jubilant. <laughs> nope, jubilant nuzzling. Yep. Oh, boy. I All have right. a cat named Jubilee, and I do call Aww. her Jube. So, Aww. hey, Jube. <laughs> She's really mean. <laughs> don't make it bad. Don't make it bad, Jube. <laughs> But yeah, so briefly on wolves, they, they are kind of known for having an alpha male pack leader in many wolves, specifically gray wolves and in North America. 
Um, and usually that is the male that mates in a, uh, in a pack of wolves. They uh, often have one female mating pair for life, male-female mating pair, the alpha pair. And in a pack, typically no other male-female pair mates. Although, like I mentioned, as many as 20% of uh, packs may have a second mating pair. But typically uh, upbringing is shared by the group which uh, I think is definitely true in lions, and I don't know about elephants and all the other species we mentioned. (laughs) There may be enough truth that I would have given you credit in trivia. There's probably at least jubilant nuzzling in all those species. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. (laughs) (laughs) All right, here's, here's a much more specific, I hope, question. Okay. Okay. Though many primates and the great apes are known to engage in monogamous relationships, what lesser apes native to rainforests, are noted for their intricate intricate duet singing um, and occasional extra pair copulation. Gibbons. Yes! Oh! I, what's this? Nice. It's everyone's favorite lesser ape. <laughs> <laughs> and so... <laughs> but yeah, so gib- gibbons are amazing. Um, so they, they typically live in kind of rainforest regions. They're smaller. And so lesser apes, they're smaller in size and stature than chimpanzees and gorillas and, and other primates that you can think of. Um, and they, they're, I mean, the thing that absolutely stuns me about them and kind of drew my attention besides their duet singing, actually like kind of two part harmony between males and females, um, is their, their primary mode of movement, which is through, I think brachiation um the swinging through tree branches um and they are they are the best species in the world at doing this like they are the species you think of when you think of animals swinging through the branches and so um just to give you a quick numerical assessment of how good they are at this mode of movement they're considered the um the fastest and most agile tree tree dwelling non-flying mammals which is basically like they move through the trees about as well as bats. Like bats are the only thing wow. that can outmaneuver them. Um, they can uh, leap from branch to branch distances of 15 meters, which is about 50 feet, at speeds Whoa. of 55 what? kilometers an hour, like a 34 mile an hour swing, like aided That's by incredible. gravity. Yeah, they can make oh. leaps of eight meters, kind of like standing or assisted leaps. And they can also walk bipedally with their arms raised for balance, like you see, like human bipedal movement. Um, yeah. yeah, I love this all the time. Yeah, <laughs> just arms straight up. Arms straight up. T- Touchdown, Jesus! Like walking through the street. <laughs> they are also super clever. When I was working on my PhD, I volunteered at the Virginia Zoo, and I got to work with their given pair. And there was an older female. Her name was Asia, and she came from a Russian circus. I just and... want to clarify when you're when you're saying an older female, you're talking about a gibbon, right? Not yeah. like a zookeeper. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It would be an impolite way to describe the zookeeper, but it seems she, fine. she came from a Russian circus. We're not really sure what her deal was. Her name was Asia, and if you handed her a grape, she would toss it in the air and catch it in her mouth, and that was like the only yeah, way she so would cool. eat a wow. grape. Nice. <laughs> So, so she was a show-off, you're saying? She was. <laughs> uh, my, my favorite thing about gibbons from a biomechanics point of view is that they're, and the way that they, they're so mobile in trees is their wrists have a ball and socket joint, which is what Whoa. humans have in your shoulder. So like like all the degrees of freedom and mobility um, that they can just kind of like grab and swing and like not snap something. 
Um, so it's absolutely incredible, like the the range of motion they have because of that. Um, that being said, because of branches snapping, vines slipping, um, usually not really misjudgments. Like they have some incredible accuracy for actually like catching the thing they're looking at. You know, traveling at thirty miles an hour, twenty five feet away. Um, but the major, and this is crazy, the majority of gibbons suffer a bone fracture in their lifetime. Which, wow. which means that like more than half of them fall and survive, but like injure themselves and have like fractures in their bones, which means that like some minority of gibbons never fall, which is actually, I think, the crazier thing that they, they all do this for a living. And like there's a bunch of them who have just never, never fallen once. <laughs> I mean, we just walk around and fall down. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and somehow I'm related to this this creature. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Asia can't believe she's related to you either, bro. <laughs> she's like, that guy? Toss grape. Yeah. No. <laughs> I don't see it. <laughs> All right. Question number three. Um, the avian species Taito alba can be found on six continents and often in pairs in drafty places. Uh, but Sirius Black in the Harry Potter series only owned one. Is it an albatross? Just from Alba? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> okay. It's <laughs> In drafty places. It's a snowy owl? So if it was a snowy owl... <laughs> Rob's like, it, it might be. Yeah, it might be. Um... <laughs> Tough to say. <laughs> yeah, that very well could be the answer. Yeah, uh, Any others? <laughs> so so the reason I mentioned Sirius Black, if it was a snowy owl, I would have said Harry owns Harry, it okay. for yeah. Hedwig, but Sirius owned a different type of owl, who oh, a pair a of which owl? might live in a drafty old... A yeah. barn. A barn owl. Or a, That's it. a barn owl. Okay. Yep. Oh. Yeah. And so, yep, barn owls. You might think you'll have a hoot on a night out with this species, <laughs> but you won't because they're monogamous. <laughs> and actually you won't because barn owls don't hoot, they screech. Oh. <laughs> two, two reasons why you, your assumptions should be cast aside. <laughs> now, many of our birds do enjoy some EPC or extra pair copulation where mm-hmm. they can be either socially monogamous or genetically monogamous so it's mm. quite complicated really you still might have a chance tried to think of a pickup line owl joke and i got nothing so <laughs> but I'm, I'm i'm gratified to think you think i have a chance with the barn owl <laughs> uh, pickup line for one of the gibbons could be like did it hurt when you fell from that tree <laughs> and broke a bone <laughs> all right <laughs> All right, question number four. What middle American rodent, Microctus acrogaster, a model of mammalian family structure, has been observed coordinating and dividing responsibility in their nest building? Would this be like prairie dogs? Ooh, not not dogs. <laughs> oh, maybe. maybe prairie dogs. <laughs> oh, prairie Could somethings. Well... <laughs> what else is on the prairie? Uh, it just got it from like middle America. <laughs> That was, that was the intent yeah. there. Did you it, is it corn dogs? <laughs> <laughs> Did you say it was a rodent? Yes. Middle American rodent species, Microctus acrogaster. And they are a model of mammalian family structure, similar to some other more common lab species. Um, but these specifically have very kind of well-described uh, coordination and division of basically home care. Uh, would this be a prairie vole? It is a prairie vole. As, and also as opposed to the mountain vole. 
which we might hear a little bit. Ooh. About, oh, no, we're not going to hear a little bit about. I, I wasn't going to mention the mountain vole. I <laughs> do, you, the, do you mean the meadow vole? Do I mean the meadow vole? There's there a mountain vole. Oh, wait. I, I only so, know about prairie voles because I only looked up this one species. Okay, this is actually really cool. And I can't remember which way it is, but there's a prairie vole and a meadow vole. One of which is monogamous. Right. And the other is promiscuous. That's what I was saying about the mountain vole. I don't know if now I'm starting to question uh, whether it's mountain. I think it's meadow. (laughs) Are are there voles everywhere? Is there a desert vole? (laughs) An ocean vole? (laughs) Sky vole. In the world of tomorrow. (laughs) Next James Bond movie. It's so, the prairie voles are monogamous. The meadow voles are promiscuous. And it all comes down ooh. to the oxytocin receptors that they right. have. Ooh. Um, cool. So the, the, the other vole is, I'm, is the montane vole, not huh. maybe the mountain vole. But that's why I, I just may have encoded that as mountain. Um, Although the, the other vole. They do live in the Rockies, though. That's the thing that's making me think that it is mountain. Hmm. So the yes, other vole... montane voles are found in mountainous and other high elevation terrain. Why are they called montane? <laughs> there you go. It's it's the vole's fault. Blame it's it a little them. extra pretense. <laughs> I found a really interesting paper about the use of prairie voles for a studying family structure, um, and this was a uh, a paper in developmental psychobiology from about ten years ago that looked at what happened in since they're monogamous biparental voles. What would happen in species with the loss of a parent, community rearing, and like basically division of labor, and the how a single parent would take up responsibilities that their lost partner had previously done, um, and so it's a really interesting uh, kind of paper about in some instances like a non non blood related vole might step in, but in many instances it would become a single parent um, family from a biparental unit, and it's really interesting. Um, kind of parallels to other species that's different than I think like one of the results is that this is not what you see in mouse rearing in laboratories so four questions down right halfway through this quiz Um, question number five and I'm going to be a little a little puerile here sorry but what giggle inducing phallic sounding mammal is a monogamous member of the African antelope family oh I, I get it. I get it only from your saying that it sounds like a phallus. Mm-hmm. Um, dick, dick. Oh, uh, dick, dick. Uh, have you seen the unsolicited dick, dick Twitter account? Yeah. Love that. Uns- yeah, unsolicited dick, dick. dick. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a much better version of that. So, so dick, dicks are adorable. Yeah. As opposed to dick pics, which are not. <laughs> So, but the dictic is um, any of like several species of African antelope that are approximately 30 to 40 centimeters at the shoulder. So imagine an antelope oh that is 40 centimeters tall and then, then refreeze your heart. Um, they can be about six kilograms. That's about the, the biggest they can grow. So three to six kilograms on average and live for about 10 years. So about as twice as tall as a dibbler is long. <laughs> yes, put it in terms the people crazy. will recognize. <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh yeah, but so very very cute monogamous dictics. Okay, question number nice. six. 
What giggle-inducing, vaginal-sounding mammal is a monogamous woodland animal spending winters together in comfortable mountain lodges? Oh, I, I get it again just from the dirty joke. <laughs> beaver. It is, yes. What is it? It's a beaver. Be- oh. Sorry. Okay. Sorry, listeners. Sorry, female co-hosts. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> but... Yes, beavers are known for being monogamous mammals. Um, They live in, they don't, I mean, they build dams and they live in lodges, which I think is very, uh, very nice of them to live in their lovely mountain lodge. Um, That's all I have to say about beavers. All right. (laughs) There you go. All right. Two more questions. Uh, And question number seven, uh, the mute species of what family of animals has been documented for having a 3% divorce rate in successful mating pairs and a 9% divorce rate among unsuccessful mating pairs? And the effect of vanity is not measured. But vanity, okay, so they're showy. Yes, or they're, they're kind of like, that's the stereotype of this animal, deserved or otherwise. A vain animal. Is it a peacock? It is a, it is avian, okay. But it is not the peacock. Mm. So these are also animals known for they can make a a uh, not a chirping or tweeting sound. It's more of a I don't know. I, I'm afraid giving the sound will be a giveaway. Like a parakeet. No, again, but a, okay. another good showy bird. How about a how about a sound? Give us a sound. Oh, a parrot. Because they make noise. I can, I can, I think I can try to give a sound because okay. they they have a Let's distinct sound and it's kind of a. <laughs> Was that a duck? Um, <laughs> is it a goose? So I'm I'm thinking this is uh, mute swans. It is the mute swan. Yes. <laughs> oh. Which have that sort of like very famous monogamy uh, that may. You know, be on the margins, not as, uh, not as much fidelity to that monogamy as the as the storybook version of those <laughs> species mm-hmm. would seem. There's a there's an Ogden Nash poem about the swan that really plays up uh, swans, like kind of vanity. Unfortunately, it, it makes like a really like it makes a really like non mainstream reference, which is difficult. Um, but so, uh, do you know the That the never poem? happens here, so. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, sorry, fans that only come for hip-hop references and, like... Okay, so, the swan can swim while sitting down. For pure conceit, it takes the crown. Scholars call the masculine swan a cob. I call him a narcissistic snob. He looks in the mirror over and over and claims to have never heard of Pavlova. Was this the Vandy reference you made? Oh, Just, like, this poem? Pavlova the opera singer? Um, and see that I I don't know. It could be, yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, maybe hard to say, hard to say. Can't can't rule it out. <laughs> um, but I actually don't even know what pavlova is. If it's like, uh, it, isn't it a dessert? It is. <laughs> maybe it's that. Yeah, it definitely is. Actually, I don't know if that's what they're referring to. The rest of the poem is sort of like. <laughs> the important part and then i realize it ends in this like un, un useless reference for me <laughs> but but yeah look into this now swans are narcissistic I um think. But they're also <laughs> i just say because they're also not mute swans aren't mute um by any means they're just 
they're called that because they're slightly less noisy than their like sort of near relation the whooper swan (laughs) (laughs) so it's just they have much louder sort of close related species so can can i amend my impersonation it's more of a sure (laughs) (laughs) thank you for that okay Good. We'll we'll put that back in where it's supposed to be, right? No, you'll just kind of smooth that on. Yeah, 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 no problem. I'll definitely spend a lot of time making sure that sounds better. (laughs) (laughs) Also, a quick Google search yields that it is in reference to opera singer Anna Pavlova, which made me excited. A little disappointed that there's no rap genius uh, version of Mm. that poem, but I guess we're not there yet. (laughs) Question number eight. So I promised there would be one cheesy love movie reference here but it's also a chance to talk about animal love so here's your question number eight what 2015 colin farrell rachel weiss movie with a crustacean namesake and a cans jury pick award is set in a dystopian future in which singles are required to find mates within 45 days or else they are turned into animals and set loose in the wild wait is it the movie title yes the lobster yes <laughs> it is the lobster cool very weird movie so weird i've Good not movie. heard that i've weird not movie. heard of this movie oh noah it's what's so... going on with this movie it's so weird <laughs> yeah yeah it's been described as the perfect critique of society but also just really really strange so and yeah. if if you understand it better um maybe one of you would like to explain it because essentially if you don't find a mate in 45 days, you are turned into an animal. And that's about what I understand. And it's it's Colin uh, Colin Farrell's rush to, to find a mate. Yeah. Hmm. So it's uh, – I had to look up his name because I can never recall it, like, when I have to say it. But it's a Yorgos Lanthimos movie. So as a director, hmm. he makes very, like, kind of peculiar movies. But, yeah, that's kind of the premise. That could be Which one is your – the favorite? Which <laughs> – <laughs> nice. <laughs> Thank you. Um but I mean yeah, without giving too much away, that's that's kind of it. Um and sort of like yeah, he's checked into this kind of like facility of people who just like need to find mates or else they are turned into animals and Is they speculate like... like I'd like to be this kind of animal. Like <laughs> I think they actually they get to choose like what animal oh. they're turned into quite, as well. Quite humane, yeah. Yeah. So he did arrive at a lobster. Um yeah. So he he Actually, does become a lobster. Well, spoilers. Gonna, spoilers. <laughs> okay. All not right. going to go that so, far, but <laughs> but that does prompt the question. At least I think, if you guys had to be turned into an animal, what animal would you pick? Human. Otter. Green. Cop out. Really, Noah. <laughs> <laughs> I would be a montane vole. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Going with Greenland shark. Ooh, Ooh. they live for oh, so long. Like yeah, they must know so many secrets. <laughs> totally. Oh, man. So, I I also have one quick follow up on on this last question, which doesn't need to go in. But do you or do you not think lobsters are monogamous? I feel like I've heard that they are, but I am untrusting of any blanket monogamous labels. I've heard I... that they engage in common claw marriages. <laughs> <laughs> and what is your very serious answer that I would like you to know? 
My my hunch is no, only because I have not heard of any other crustaceans, and I assume they're a crustacean um, being monogamous, so yeah yeah so kind of on theme with tonight the answer is yeah, yeah maybe um they might be it's a good it's a good thought it's a really good thought <laughs> yeah, yeah so um so basically uh they do not practice long-term monogamy basically someone who wrote for mental floss determined that this is some form of monogamy that they call serial monogamy where essentially <laughs> It's just a series of hookups that can last anywhere from hours to days, which is somehow not, I guess it's not polygamy because it's not all simultaneous. Uh, because they, wait, but if it's hours, like, yeah, I, that, it, what is, hmm. It <laughs> that really, changes my interpretation of polygamy then, where it's just like polygamy, like every two minutes you are hopping on something else. It's like, no, as long as it's linear and in a series, then it's monogamy. And like, sure. Okay. okay. Um, but yeah, essentially they, they shack up with their shell mates, um, <laughs> and then a male lobster can impregnate a, a, a number of different female lobsters over the course of its life. Uh, so yeah, short answer, no. Lobster is not the romantic animal you thought it was watching the movie <laughs> The Lobster. <laughs> so that's our show. Uh, thank you for listening, everyone. And Carly, thank you so much for joining us. It was really wonderful to have you. This yeah, was thank you. Yes. This was a joy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is there is there anything we should look out for that you're doing coming out soon? Uh, and that, by the way, is any time between like now and July, basically. <laughs> Oof, I can't think of anything at the moment. I'm hoping okay. to take a little bit of a rest, to be honest, after teaching through a pandemic. I'm, t- yeah. I'm tired, <laughs> but, all good. but stay Very tuned. Reasonable. There's more stuff on the horizon, I'm sure. If our, if our listeners wanted to check in on, on your day-to-day, can you tell us where to find you on social media? Sure. I am most active on Twitter at Biology Carly, and I am also on Instagram at The Little Biologist. And for the, our fans, you can also check out our website, faxmachinepodcast.com. And please follow us on social media where you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at faxmachinepod and on Facebook at faxmachinepodcast. And if you'd like to follow us individually, I'm SweaterVestSCI, Noah. At Arcs and Sciences. And M. At underscore E.M. Costa. Fax Machine is produced by Rob Frawley, Noah Guyverson, and Emily Costa, with editing by Noah Guyverson. Our theme music is by Anthony Antonelli, and our logo is designed by Mike Zola. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. Bye! Bye! Bye. <laughs>